Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think about it. Deep conversations with Uli Bear on big ideas and great books. I am no bird and no net ensnares me. I am a free human being with an independent will, which I now exert to leave you. This line is from Charlotte Bronte's 1847 novel, Jane Eyre. Anita Carey read it for me. Thank you, Anita, for doing so. She's an actor. Jane Eyre presents us with a cultural script of what it means for a woman to speak her truth. Jane is an orphan raised in difficult circumstances by a cruel family and then has to struggle as a teacher and governess because for a woman at that time to make her own way in the world without money or a husband was nearly impossible. The book first scandalized Victorian critics but also enchanted millions ultimately and has become the cultural script by which we think about what it means for us to fall in love. Every rom-com, every Netflix series, Indian matchmaking, The Bachelor, etc., all those shows and all those stories are indebted to Charlotte Bronte's idea that Jane Eyre can both speak her truth and fall in love. I thought about the tension between love and independence and turned to Susan Weiser, who is not only an expert on Bronte, on Jane Austen and other writers, but has written a lot about the idea of romance for women especially. Is there a possibility to be in love and not to compromise oneself and give up one's own integrity? If you listen to this podcast episode, please do me the favor and follow me on YouTube, like it on iTunes or Spotify. It makes a huge difference for others to get it. I don't make money off this podcast. Nobody pays me to do it. And you're being spared an ad right now where I'm selling you some program or some magical cure where you can find happiness. Jane Eyre's is a book about happiness. And I spoke with Susan about the quest for happiness and how it's been scripted for women, especially as finding fulfillment in romantic love. I hope you'll enjoy this episode about Charlotte Bronte's masterpiece. I'm really excited uh, to welcome today uh, Professor Susan Ostrov-Weiser. First of all, thank you, Susan, for joining me to talk about Jane Eyre today. Thank you. It's, it's really wonderful to have you on Zoom. Um, and I just want to mention for our listeners uh, that you've been thinking about Charlotte Bronte's novel, Jane Eyre, and about romance and love 
especially in relation to women for a long time. And I've read a few of the many chapters and essays you've written on Jane Eyre. Uh, the one in a book, The Glass Slipper, Women and Love Stories. You've also edited a book called Women and Romance, which has a huge selection of essays. And then another book where I first saw you thinking about Jane Eyre and what it teaches us how to be in love today, uh, which is a Craving Vacancy, Women and Sexual Love in the British Novel. So first of all, thank you for joining me. I'm really excited to talk about this novel that um, we've lived with now for such a long time, it seems. Yes, and, and still popular. Still very popular, and I wanted to just say, you've read it, and I really, I mean, we should talk for a moment, sort of, it's such a gripping story of this orphan girl who was raised by her terrible relatives, her bullying cousin, sent to a horrible boarding school, and then makes her way in England in the world. And can you say a little bit about the context of what choices did a young woman have in that period? Um, in the 1840s when Charlotte Bronte published it first, um, wanting to write a novel that would really appeal to a lot of readers. Yes, in fact, she's famous for saying that, um, well, in Mrs. Gaskell who wrote her, Elizabeth Gaskell, uh, who wrote her um, biography, uh, was the, uh, told the story that she um, talked to her sisters about all of them writing novels, of course. I mean, that's well known, right? Emily Bronte and Anne Bronte. And she said to them that she would show them, I'm paraphrasing now, she would show them that a heroine does not have to be beautiful, that she can be small and plain as was Charlotte Bronte herself and still be what she called interesting. And she made good on, on that promise. Now the context of that was that heroines in uh, British novels and American novels as well, um, and probably European as well, um, were always beautiful and charming, and uh, that, that qualified them to be loved, you know, in, in general and romantically. Um, that was, those were the feminine uh, virtues in terms of being courted and being married. So to start with, that of course was an enormous rebellion against the convention. Um, and, but that wasn't the only rebellion in Jane Eyre. In fact, uh, Matthew Arnold, the great uh, British uh, critic, um, is famous for saying that Jane Eyre was full of um, rage and rebellion. Right. And uh, rage, rage is an interesting word, right? Because it's intense anger. And um, you, you can see that this was a, a badly um, received by a number of critics, the, the, the novel, because it was felt that she had uh, rebelled against conventions of specifically uh, what women were supposed to be like, what they were supposed to want, and what heroines were supposed to model as uh, icons of femininity. When she, when she invented this character, Jane Eyre, modeled on herself as someone who's plain, not attractive, so not destined for happiness, because I guess the convention is women bring beauty and grace to the relationship, and men bring social status and money, unless women have money. When she wrote it, so she wanted to upend that convention. Do you think she set out to write a book, however, that would 
make this rage so palpable and so apparent to people? I mean, she speaks out really as a young girl already to her aunt, Ms. Reed. She just says, I cannot even help myself. I'm just going to tell you what I think. And you're thinking as a reader, you are maybe 10 or 11 at this point. This This will doom you because you have nowhere to turn. You're an orphan, you depend on these people, but she doesn't hesitate to speak up at a very young age. Right, that is right. It's, it's um, Charlotte Bronte's representation of intense feeling in, in a woman that is extremely unusual in, in, in her time. Um, it's, it's not only that women were by nature brought beauty, physical beauty and, uh, and you know, charm and grace, but they were also supposed to be uh, superior in virtue, Christian virtue, but also the social virtues. So femininity was identified with um, modesty, chastity, of course, um, obedience, subservience, uh, patience, um, uh, a a rejection of passion. In fact, uh, Bronte says that herself in the famous passion um, which is full of rebellion and rage, in which she says women are supposed to be calm by nature. Calm, right? Not, not camp down. Emotions that are, you know, women are supposed to be kind and, and uh, compassionate. They were, they were good for taking care of people um, as mothers, but they were not supposed to have intense feelings. So you can see that that Jane Eyre was received as not only, uh, in a, you know, poorly, not only because of Jane as, um, as someone who is um, uh, poor and talks back to, the, to the, her, her aunts and so forth and so on, um, but also because she has none of those virtues. She is not patient, she is not calm, uh, she is not submissive, she, you know, she refuses all that. But there's an interesting thing, and I have to touch on that since you talked about the, um, the episodes in the beginning where she talks back to, to her aunt, which of course would have been flouting all the social rules of, of authority, right? Um, because we clearly I, are meant to identify with her as an oppressed child. Um, and I think some, uh, modern day readers do still uh, appear, uh, that appeals to, to us, like the idea of the oppressed child. I mean, Dickens did it with Oliver Twist too, right? But, but it had not been done with a young girl because girls were supposed to be the, the opposite. But it's often overlooked that Jane, her, that Jane Eyre herself as a character, after all, she is the narrator and she is looking back at this and telling the story of her girlhood and then her subsequent romance. And she herself criticizes her own anger um, toward her aunt and says this this toxic hatred. I, I think she uses words like that. Um, you know, I, I I realized that this toxic hatred was was poisonous. And um, I, I mean, we have to look up the exact words that she uses. But um, but I mentioned it in the um, in my own writing. About what, do you her. Think, what do you think is at stake there? Because there are many scenes. Though this is when she's a teenager, and then she goes to this boarding school with Mr. Brocklehurst right. and she has this kind of angelic friend who dies, who doesn't speak up, who is a exactly. total, who's the epitome or paragon of Christian virtue. But what is the, if she's looking back and saying, maybe this was too much, maybe I expressed myself too harshly. But as a reader, I think we're kind of cheering her on and saying, oh my God, this poor girl, uh, good for her to say something that is how she's being mistreated. I totally agree with you that we are cheering her on and we are meant to cheer her on, but, it, but it's interesting that modern readers overlook 
her own criticism of herself. Because what, what she's doing in this novel is she is, um, she is in conflict constantly with herself about how she feels about and manages um, her feelings, whether it's about anger or as in her childhood and adolescence or um, the way that she uh, falls in love and her conflicted feelings about that, those intense um, emotions. Um, there is tremendous conflict that's going on all the time. This is not just a heroine that, that we uh, that, that we take as a model. It's someone who is modeling for us the conflict. And this conflict, of course, is the author's conflict, but it's not just the author's conflict. There's a conflict in culture. And it's, she's kind of giving us this um, incredibly exciting narrative of her development, but the options for women at this time, and Bronte herself comes from a family, there's no money really there. She can become a governess, which is really kind of a, or a housekeeper or some, in, or maybe a companion a, to a uh, rich lady, rich old lady, yeah. like, or maybe a teacher in a kind of school. And that's, those are sort of the options. And she, I think it. she very much is determined to shape her own life. So in the beginning of the book, we don't think, oh, she just wants to marry herself off to a rich man, right? She is not the story of somebody who wants to escape her condition by being saved by money. Right. So this kind of self-determination. And then the first, episodes in the school and when she becomes a teacher, she's sort of taking care of herself and you think, oh, this is actually an option for a woman in England. But then, as you said, it's really a love story. And I think most people know Jane Eyre is the love story of her and Mr. Right. Rochester. So right. what does love become then? Because it does, it's not the direct vehicle to financial security and happiness. It's something else. You mean it, love is not the direct vehicle? Yeah. It's yes. not the book where we think today sort of, oh, it's a poor girl and she's going to just try to make herself as attractive as possible, meet a rich husband and get married. And then we're, we're set with a tale. But it's something else, love actually becomes one of these things that she reflects on constantly. How, what am I supposed to do with this feeling that I have for Mr. Rochester, who's out of her reach at the moment? As her exactly. You know, once again, I think it's, it's, a, it's a good comparison uh, for us to make with Oliver Twist who you know, is, is born into, a, into poor circumstances uh, and uh, we follow his trajectory um, as he grows up and you know, he makes his way in the world and of course he, he winds up with good fortune. And that's not through love, it's not through marriage, right? right. But for a girl, that is the way that you could um, succeed. And um, when we say that, that uh, women had very few choices um, we have to remember that working class women had the choice of very few choices also, and they were, they were pretty awful. Uh, basically, it was, you know, factories, um, service, which was the, 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 their term for being a maid, basically, and, um, or prostitution. So re remember, we're talking about, you know, James is, rose up in a middle class home. But the, the middle class home was... Um, like a cage, and Jane herself says in the scene, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, where she refuses Rochester's proposal to be her mistress, which that is a pivotal scene, the pivotal scene, I, I would say, in, in the novel. Um, she says, I, I'm a wild bird, I'm, wild. I'm a bird, I'm not going to be a bird in a cage, words to that effect. I am no bird and no net ensnares me. 
I am a free human being with an independent will, which I now exert to leave you. That immediately makes me think of a long narrative poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning that was tremendously popular orally, in which Aurora Lee uh, comes from Europe and uh, Italy and uh, comes to live with her aunt in, uh, in England. And this, this is a very conventional, uh, religious and stuffy aunt. Aurora Lee has an artistic nature. And she says, I was a wild bird put into a cage with my aunt. Again, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember the exact lines. Um, so the, the, the metaphor of the bird in the cage was that marriage was... Um, what women were meant for. And uh, of course, religion bolstered that as well, right? Women are born to be the helpmeet and to be the, the wife and the mother. Um, but it was also a protective cage, not just in terms of economic support, but in terms of uh, social support and personal identity. It, it's who you were. You were someone's wife. And that had all sorts of implications legally, socially, uh, politically, because you couldn't vote, of course. Um, emotionally, and so forth and so on. So um, when Jane falls in love, this determines something about, and also says something about her personal identity, who she is at the core. And what do you mean by how, when she falls in love, and before we, when you said that marriage, there's this metaphor of the cage, we have that, it goes, actually, it makes me think, it goes all the way to Maya Angelou, who writes, I know where the caged bird sings. Oh, yes. Which yeah. is a line, it's a line out of Paul Lawrence Dunbar, out of, a, out of a poem she takes. But there's something in the Angela book in, in Jane she wants to say what she feels. She wants to express yes. herself. That's but right. when she falls in love, there's a complication in that, in a way. She sort of starts expressing herself, but what you're saying, the next option would be to submit to marriage and enter into this metaphoric cage. Yes, so, well, when we, yeah, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, but I'm kind of interested because you've read the book as kind of giving us a script of what romantic love can be. Sort of, you prove your independence, you express your emotions, you're, you're, you are in touch with your passionate feelings, but then they're supposed to be channeled into this convention. Which... Exactly. And we, we see that. I think that, that Bronte is reflecting this. We're skipping, we're skipping over the, um, that part, but um, the, we're skipping over the part that I wanted to dwell on, which is when um, uh, Rochester uh, proposes to her in the garden. So give us, that, give us the context of that. It's, I think it's, it's, such a, it's, it's the pivotal chapter. I think it's chapter 23 or something in the novel, right? It Which, is, it's, it's pivotal, yes. All right, let's go, let's go back to that. And then we'll, I want to follow up with, with their engagement because that says yeah. something about the way right. that Bronte views marriage too. So I don't want to skip over that one. So, but let's go back to the proposal scene. It's, it's very beautiful and it, you know, it purposely takes place outdoors in, a, in a, uh, you know, a, a wonderful garden that she has beautiful smell of flowers around her. Um, and he tells, he, he, he plays this really nasty, cool trick on her, uh, yeah. which is that he tells her that he's sending her away. Um, and um, he, she gets tremendously upset. And then she makes a speech in which she says to him, I am not you know, a, a, a machine, I have feelings and uh, they are powerful feelings. And if I had some beauty, and some money, I would make you uh, want to be with me. I tell you, I must go, I retorted, roused to something like passion. Do you think I can stay to become nothing to you? 
Do you think I am an automaton, a machine without feelings? And can bear to have my morsel of bread snatched from my lips and my drop of living water dashed from my cup? Do you think because I am poor, obscure, plain and little, I am soulless and heartless? You think wrong. I have as much soul as you and full as much heart. And if God had gifted me with some beauty and much wealth, I should have made it so hard for you to leave me as it is now for me to leave you. I am not talking to you now through the medium of custom, conventionalities, nor even mortal flesh. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit, just as if both had passed through the grave and we stood at God's feet, equal, as we are. I think that it's important to know the, the, the social context of this, which is that you would never find a speech like that in a conventional novel in the 19th century because it was a very important part of women's uh, femininity. The social codes were very strict about this, going back quite a long time, that women did not um, assert themselves. Their passivity in romance was extremely important. I mean, remember, they're loved for their femininity. And part of femininity is passivity. The man is the decider, the man is the leader. And that very much included any, any sort of romance or even without romance, a marriage proposal. So um, when, she, when she gives this little address, so Rochester, first of all, he tricks her. It's very cruel. He says, basically, yeah. you cannot stay here. You will have to go to Ireland far away. And she keeps on confessing and saying, I, but I would be separated from you. And it bursts out of her. And then he keeps on toying with her until right. he reveals that actually you would be the bride. And then she gives right. this, this little speech that you talk about when she says, I, I tell you, I must go. I retorted, roused to something like passion. Do you think I can stay to become nothing to you? Do you think I'm an automaton, a machine without feelings? And then she ends this quote by saying, which I found really remarkable. I'm not talking to you now through the medium of custom, conventionalities nor even of mortal flesh. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit, just if both had passed through the grave and we stood at God's feet equal as we are. Yes. So you're saying this upends the entire convention. There is no women at this moment in fiction and which don't know whether in real life who actually says, I'm your equal and I have every right to express my emotions and my love yes. for you. And then and she says- in, Yeah, yeah not just fiction. Says, and not just in fiction, wait, say this again. So, not just fiction, because for um, one of my chapters in The Glass Slippers, chapter three, I think, um, I read over 100 right. Victorian, um, American, and British magazine articles on romantic love. Right. And you would never see a, a heroine or a model girl. And you know, some, most of these were not fiction. They were nonfiction. They were essays, essentially. What is the equivalent today to such things? So you read all these Victorian manuals of how to behave. Like, how do people today, how do teenagers or Jane Eyre starts out as a kid, how do, how do we learn actually, do you think, how to declare our love or be in love? Because well, this that's the subject of that chapter. <laughs> people there's, would go to a manual. Yeah. I mean, yeah, um, but, but may I just go back to the, uh, the proposal scene? I, I mean, I think, I think you're right about the cruelty, as, as I said, of his playing this, you know, sort of thing. Oh, it was all a joke. I really, um, you know, in love with you and want to marry you. Um, my point is that um, she, she absolutely um, uh, says, I have the right to my 
intense feelings and I have a right to confess them because we are equals. Now, she doesn't say they're social equals. She, she says they're, they're equals spiritually in their souls. So there's a definition of love here that was really, uh, that's really unusual for its time in that um, we see them falling in love because they're what, what she calls at one point kith and kin. You know, they're, they're so much alike each other. Um, as she gets to know him, they have similar uh, uh, temperaments in some ways. He's also very passionate, you know, um, and not conventional and alienated from society. Um, and they have similar tastes and so forth and so on. And this is a very modern idea. I mean, you don't, you don't get this all that much in, um, in fiction before this. I mean, first of all, think of Romeo and Juliet. They know each other how many hours before they are madly in love and dying for each other, right? So this is not about psychology. It's not about who we are in terms of our values and our tastes. And even in Jane Austen, you don't find this kind of, you certainly don't find this kind of passion. But uh, it, it isn't so much about having um, a, a kind of a spiritual soul um, connection, your soul, not in just the Christian sense, but in that sense that we use it in a, in a secular sense in society. Uh, you're my soulmate. In other words, right. we, we are very much alike and, and bonded together because we're so intensely alike. So I think that, that that's a way in which um, Bronte uh, sort of was inventing this idea of love, and um, and I think it makes the novel continuously um, famous and continuously read. For one thing, when you say she invents this um, this grammar or this category, this paradigm for us, do you think people in the time of Shakespeare, sixteen hundred Romeo and Juliet, or in Austen's time, sort of the late eighteen hundreds, do you think they actually love differently, or do you think she just finally makes real what people had experienced? Because it's a question whether whether we actually are different from people in the eighteen fifties. This okay. This is a question I have thought about, and and, and the question fascinates me. Um, I think it's an unanswerable question, which is always my favorite kind of question. Um, because then you have to think about it. You know, if there's an answer, you can just research it. If, if it's not answerable, you, you have to think about it. And so um, I would say that I've also thought about this, not just in the question of what was romantic love like, but also in, in terms of what was, what was sexual feeling like. In other words, when culture is different, does that alter sexual feelings? Do people actually not have uh, the same kind of desires or uh, express them in the same ways or experience them to themselves. That's, I'm not talking about how we, how much our outer face or our outer performances yeah. uh, reflect them. I'm talking about the way we experience it when we're alone with ourselves. Um, I think it's, I'm not going to say it's true, but I think it's very possible that culture can very much shape the way we experience our own feelings. And, and I, I know I'm not alone in that. There's certainly a, a whole group of sociologists who believe that uh, as well. Um, but as I say, it, it's not provable, but it's, but it's so fascinating. And yeah, I think that people did define love quite differently and they may have experienced it differently. But I think what you're saying in your books, when you're saying that love or romance may not be timeless and universal, and then you're saying Jane Eyre does something that we hadn't seen before, that then it is possible that actually people then channel whatever, I don't know whether there's such a thing as innate desire or attraction or affection into a story or script that then they become familiar with. The, the way exactly. in which you know that 
something like adolescence is invented at some point that kids used to go from kids to working lives because at age 12 you started working there was no this not this period it's a kind of invention that's right that's story. right so so Jane Eyre gives us something that is new different from Jane Austen from other stories before that so what happens in this scene when Rochester when she finally says to Rochester spiritually we're connected um and I am your equal and then she kind of says and this is why I can reject you actually <laughs> it's actually that's right. exactly that gives her the freedom to reject him um, yeah. Let me say something about their engagement period, because I do think that that's important, too. It's, all, it's often overlooked, but if you look at it, if you read it closely, she is very ambivalent about marriage in that. Yeah. And that's before Bertha comes on the scene, you know, and upends the whole thing and, you know, it introduces that gothic element into the plot. Just, it's, there's something about the, uh, the there's a, a lot of bird in the cage it, that she feels in um, in that period of engagement where he begins to possess her, to want to possess her. And she is madly in love with him. In fact, she says at one point that he's blotting out the image of God for her. She is, she, she is so devoted to him that she almost worships him. But at the same time, she doesn't like that sense of being owned. And he begins to treat her. He wants to shower her with gifts because that's what a man in love, a wealthy man in love would do. That, that was pure convention. And, um, and she does not like that he is trying to dress her up as though she's a doll. So you can see that she, she's uneasy with the, the easy out of, okay, now I've, I've you know, snared my, my man, and now I'm going to be happy. Um, she's uncomfortable with, with those terms of marriage um, as well. So I think that adds a complication. You, you talk about that in, when you write about Shania. So is this moment of engagement where she realizes so she's overwhelmed with happiness and she realizes Rochester actually loves her although she's plain and she has no money and she has not the status and she he gives up this uh, Blanche Ingram the other woman who is fancy and pretentious and an aristocrat because she's yes. actually shallow. so he's not shallow but then she realizes what I'm entering into maybe deprives me of what I want is to be free in love which and I think this is the kind of strange contradiction you've talked about in all your books. How do you actually enter into a relationship with somebody but retain this? And we by now love Jane Eyre as a character because she has such an independence of spirit. That's right. That's so right. I thought as a reader, I sort of wanted her to be this independent person. Then I also think, okay, fantastic. Now she's going to get Rochester, who is a bit of a rake. And we find out he's just, this is also, we should talk about what kind of person he is. But then she realizes if I Mary Rochester, I'm not going to be free anymore in this way. Right. And she never just, she never uh, proposes not marrying him, but she yeah. is, she is clearly uncomfortable with the, with the circumstances. And, you know, I think what, one thing I admire so much about this novel is that Charlotte Bronte is not afraid to engage really challenging questions. So yeah. that are, that we're not being engaged in her time very much at all. Um, and that, that question I would say here, is how does the power dynamic of gender in, interact with or intersect with the power dynamic in love? So he has treated her as an equal um, instead of, you know, she's poor, she has little power, she's his uh, uh, servant in a way, you know, a fancy servant, governess. Um, so he, in, in that way, she is, uh, she is risen, her power has, has risen up to the social status of, of wife, or it's going, it's supposed to, but then 
he is also mastering her in love. In other words, she is dependent on him because when one is in love, one is dependent on the beloved for pleasure and, um, right. and need that wasn't necessarily there before. Um, and so he has a certain power over her, um, both as a man, but also as her beloved. And yeah. the power struggle between them is very interesting, actually, to see. And, and do you think this book was, I mean, today, first of all, I think what you just said, that this this question that Bronte raises, it's still with us today. And when we look exactly. at fantasies, and so, you know, many, but not all, you know, Hollywood or other movies and many reality TV shows, the convention is still, the, the bride will be given away by her father. The husband is the one who proposes. Yes. He buys the ring. I mean, there's so many conventions completely alive with us today, where it's really, the woman is entering into an arrangement where the men, the men controls a lot. So they have taken out the obey. <laughs> a lot of women yeah. take out the obey from the traditional marriage ceremony. But, but yes, the conventions are still there. I think that someone who uh, got married conventionally would argue, well, they're just rituals, you know, we follow rituals because they're, they're uh, charmingly old fashioned and it doesn't necessarily imply that my relationship with my husband is not going to be equal. I mean, I, I think they would make that argument. Um, but, but in fact, um, there is a, an imbalance in romance that I have written about quite a bit, which is that romance is um, still, I would argue, more important to a woman's personal identity um, than to a man. And my evidence for that, the audience for romantic novels, for romantic movies, for uh, magazine articles that are going to help you to find the right man or put, keep your marriage, um, you know, uh, passionate or, or et cetera, et cetera. They're almost all aimed at women. You know, one thing that I do when I'm teaching a, a seminar that I've, I've taught a number of times, and it's my favorite class in the whole world, which is uh, romantic love in literature and culture. I have my students uh, look at um, magazines, now, nowadays they're mostly online, right? That are aimed at women and magazines that are aimed at men, like, you know, uh, GQ or men's health or whatever, and compare the articles on love. And they are astonished to see there are almost no articles on love <laughs> in the men's magazines. But the women's magazines are filled with them, filled with them. Um, this is a preoccupation of, of women. Now, there are some who would say, well, that's just biological. You know, women want to be mothers, or there's all these, uh, you know, evolutionary psychology uh, article, uh, uh, sorry, theories about why women are more interested in romance, none of which I buy, by, by the way. Um, but, you know, again, I don't have any proof, <laughs> and neither do they. But, but there is something that is very imbalanced about that, because if you are, if that, if romance is that important to you, um, the, and it's not as important to the, I'm talking about heterosexual relationships here because those are the, the two genders. Um, if it, it is not as important to the, the man in the relationship, then there is a power imbalance. Um, so can, now, just, I want to ask this question directly about Jane Eyre. So when she, so in the moment when they're engaged to be married and then this marriage doesn't, the wedding ceremony is interrupted and doesn't take place. But do you think she, 
as a reader and she as a character, do we think she now will be complete as a woman because she will now finally be married to the man she loves? And is the sense, is the plot of this book until then kind of a, what we would consider a conventional romance. So we're sort of happy, we're all excited. So Rochester as complicated and dark and mysterious as he is, that's his charm. But then the whole thing falls apart. And then the book I feel has a whole second iteration where this question becomes a really driving question of her character of sort of yes. what did I actually almost go into here and then so birth so we should talk about the appearance or the so she has been there locked up in the attic the famous mad woman in the attic Bertha Mason so right. can you talk about that character of what she does what function she has in that book because I think she's Bertha, such you're talking about Bertha yes yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it, it's certainly not my original idea uh, that uh, Bertha is a displacement of the the uh, the rage and the the uh, the need and the wildness of passion. Uh, she is said to be uh, alcoholic. I mean, of course, they, she does not. Bronte does not use that term, but she drinks too much, and she's it's, it's suggested that she's promiscuous, that she's inherited the uh, uh, insanity and. Um, and generally speaking, she's she's like a monster that's kept. She's the monster that's kept in the attic. So um, that's a way of sort of taking these intense feelings that are constituted by you know romantic passion and taking them out of the context of marriage where they're about to be placed and put into an extreme form, which is extremely threatening. And it, it has to be contained in some way. Um, before it can be contained, of course, Jane uh, leaves. She, she leaves. Right. So, so the reading you just proposed is the, the very famous reading. So this is uh, Sandra Gilmert and Susan Gubar, who wrote right. a book in the early 70s called The Mad Woman in the Attic. And they actually tried to analyze how English language fiction and poetry has scripted an idea of yeah. women as secondary. And inferior. They sort of do what Simone de Beauvoir did for all of world literature except British really and she said women have always been relegated to the status of having to be created and not sort of having the kind of capacity that men have to shape their own lives but having lives shaped for them. And so for them the figure is this displaced anger, rage, also sexual desire that Rochester married her for money and for pleasure and and I'm interested when she's displacing this under this Gothic character, how do you think people are then sort of once she's put away in the in the attic and then Jane leaves the scene, she actually runs away from, right. goes away. As a reader, what are we supposed to do at this point? Think, oh, so he lied. He was actually married to this woman from the Caribbean whose story we don't get, which will we get much later through Jean Reese's novel, The White Hypothesis. <laughs> right, yes. which, which, is, which is important. It actually, I think the, the most famous prequel in literature that Jean Reese in England in 1966 publishes a novel says, this is the story of Bertha Antoinette Mason, who yes. you didn't know about. So here's her voice. What so I, point here, right? yes. And I also thought it was such a great idea that Jean Reese sort of took the lesson of Jane Eyre and said, a woman has a right to speak. And said, let me write that book about that woman who doesn't speak in that novel. That's right. That's right. So when Jane goes away, what do you think we're supposed to think now? Is marriage now out of the question? She's going to settle for life as a kind of well-respected spinster teacher. And that's it. <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't we don't know, and neither neither does Jane, and that's an important pivotal point. Uh, that's the that, that it's a very long chapter when Rochester tells his story. He tells he tries to justify what he has done in hiding Bertha from her and hiding the marriage by telling her the story of his life. Really, as he begins back, you know, back uh, he begins way back so that that he can justify what kind of life he's had and what she means to him through telling that story. And then he proposes, you know, you don't have to leave. We. Um, I'm married in only in name and legally, and of course, divorce was not an option at that time. Because my, the first thing my students say is, "Why, why can't they just get divorced?" Um, but you know, we can we can live together, and and that's where she comes up with this um, this passage in which she cries to him, uh, "No, I am I am not going to." Uh, he, he he says something to her like. Uh, who will care, which is true, you know, who will know, who will care um, once we run away, probably to France is what he has in mind, really. Um, we don't have relatives who are going to be ruined by this, so it's not going to hurt anybody, so wh why should I care? And she says, I care for myself. I respect myself. Um, that's, oh, a, is, that's a cry. That, that's the quote worth looking at. This is, you've talked about this quote. They said, it is, is it better to drive a fellow creature to despair than to transgress a mere human law, no man being injured by the breach. For you have neither relatives nor acquaintances whom you That's need by living with me. So you're saying, you're asking this question that he's proposing to her, look, it's only a formality. I have this unfortunate, terrible situation. I had to be married to this woman. She's gone insane, but will be happy nonetheless. That's, that's right, exactly. And he makes a very reasonable argument. No one is going to be hurt if they run away together. And, uh, but she, she's, she is um, questioning this idea that your claim to your own happiness is greater than what we owe to either others or to God. Uh, this is partly a religious question for her. It's definitely a religious question for her. I shouldn't she, she even say, Partly, I would say, overall, it's a religious question for her. And her answer is that she doesn't even think twice. She doesn't even consider it. Um, emotionally, she wants to. But here, after all this about, you know, I have a right to my feelings, and I, uh, I have a, a right to uh, put my private happiness first and so on, above the conventions of being a woman, she does a complete flip around and says, you know, uh, no, I, I, um, I, what we owe to God and what we owe to others is more important than our personal pleasures and happiness. And this is not a, this is a kind of a, what I mean, an illustration of what I was saying before is a kind of weighing of these questions and uh, the, the tensions and the conflicts all through the novel. But I think, you know, if you say something like, uh, well, if you're comparing a popular romance uh, to Jane Eyre, they're both just romances. You know, if Jane Eyre is a romance and a, and a Hollywood novel is a romance, then they're all just romances. Um, this is where the difference is, is that Jane Eyre is very complex. And the difference is here, sort of, to just, I just want to stay with this point that you've made so well, sort of, there's this, so there's a recognition that sort of, you can be filled with passion, you have a right to declare that, you actually as a woman have as much of a right to declare right. that, and so that's very new and radical. But yes. then he says, but this passion must nonetheless somehow be framed in a Christian framework and cannot just become a right. selfish or sort of, that's so it's right. not a kind of novel 
sort of, and we would say in a kind of proto-feminist idea that has sort of said a woman's desire, she says, yes, it is equal to a man's. Yes, it has every right to be expressed. Nonetheless, there are some frames in which to express that, right? It, that is my point, yes, and that it, is exactly my point. And this framing is not quite so, so when we go to the plot of the novel, so now she's left Thornhill, she is sort of resettling, she then meets, which is the other great turn of events, she meets the kind of hidden forgotten cousins, and then this other main St. John Rivers proposes to her to go to India and basically just marry for show because he couldn't really travel with her as his cousin. That's right. It would be a pragmatic marriage and she would be his helper, yes. And she completely rejects that. So she, she actually- She's about the turnaround. <laughs> exactly. So as a says, woman- I reject, your, I, I reject your idea of love. That's what she said. It's says. really interesting. And if you think Rochester really, really betrayed her in a way and lied to her and said he had, and has his hidden wife, it's horrible. And then she, she actually is abandoned and sort of almost dies. She's poor. She walks right. through the forest. And then she gets an option to say, okay, here's social recognition, here's status. It's actually a nice man who's not offensive to her. And she says, I don't want that. So the, the, the convention is something she's actually examining. It's not obvious what, how to channel her passion, right? And exactly. On the other hand, she was doing pretty well at that point. Yeah. You know, and until she hears Rochester's voice supernaturally over the hills, um, which my dissertation advisor, Stephen Marcus, called uh, Victorian Holcomb. <laughs> Holcomb, really? Holcomb, yes. <laughs> what did he mean by this? What did he mean? Like he thought in this kind of realist novel it didn't quite work or something? Did she use the voice? He thought it was typically a typical Victorian, yeah, kind of a, a cheap shot, a, a cheap way of, of sort of uh, making the plot move along. Because I had, in my, in my dissertation, I had an analysis of that as, you know, some sort of literary analysis. And he, he wrote in his little handwriting on my, on my Victorian Holcomb. <laughs> it says something about this moment. So she's actually now settled. And in some ways you could think she doesn't strike us as miserable and she's renounced. Exactly. Her and exactly. What, what do you think this voice that comes to her that she hears and she says, I'm going to set out on my own and go back to a place that where I really have not, where, where the place of her complete shock and unhappiness it's a real exactly. So why do you think this? What do you think is done at this moment? Yes, it's an important moment, I think, in understanding what this novel is about. A Victorian Holcomb or no Victorian Holcomb, right? Because um, <laughs> because she is she has found a certain freedom and comfortability and dignity. You know, she's a she's a teacher, and unlike in real life, when Charlotte Bronte was a teacher, and uh, which which she said in her journal made her want to vomit. Um, in, in the novel, you know, she, she's doing well with it and she's made these close female friends. They have a nice little community of, of women there and, and, and there's a man who she greatly admires. In fact, she closes the novel with, with him um, and her admiration of him as a missionary, you know, in, in India. Ick. But um, nevertheless, the, what the heck? Why not end it there, right? I think that the fact that she does hear this voice, which of course is an excuse to go find him, go find Rochester, is a recognition of the emotional need that Jane Eyre has. That women, it's not just about women being free and independent and, um, and dignified and equal, women need love. And um, that's of course uh, something that what became in the 1970s during the second wave um, of feminism, 
that became a contested idea. Do women need love? You know, um, Philip Firestone was famous for saying, you know, men can't love and we should do away with love um, uh, because it only disempowers women. And Germaine Greer uh, in, in uh, England called it dupe for dopes. Romantic love is dupe for dopes. And, you know, women need to learn to be on their own or they should have their emotional connections with other women. Of course, you were, if you were a lesbian, you had that, you know, you had that one down pat. But, um, but for heterosexual women, what exactly were heterosexual women supposed to do? Not fall in love. Is that, right. is that the solution? Uh, well, Jane says herself, I'm helpless. Um, not, she actually uses that word, helpless. I'm helpless to fall out of love with him, she says. I can't fall out of love with him. Um, it's an overwhelming feeling to be in love. And so she's, um, she, she is going to pursue that part of her identity and her desire that is still there. And uh, why shouldn't she is the question that the novel asks, right? Why, why should we not have this? Well, it's such, an, it's such a great way you're explaining this because it's the option is she's settled there, but she is in love. She says, I cannot renounce that. And she says, what I'm settling for is actually a diminished life or loneliness or this kind of marriage by convenience. But I actually refuse, and this is why I think makes Jane so interesting. She then refuses to say, I will not be diminished in my choices, even though love may be a sort of a, what you said in the, in the 70s, feminists say is a kind of trap or something. And yeah. I just thought I really, I have to really think about this when I think about Scarlet Letter, which was written in the same time in, in America by Hawthorne. Hester yeah. Prynne ultimately lives on the outskirt of town, raises Pearl, who becomes the vision for a future of a woman who actually will become a young woman who loves in a different way. But in Scarlet Letter, the woman actually cannot live out her love and has to become the voice of conscience for the community. But Jane Eyre, in some ways, goes from her little cottage back to Thornhill. And what happens then? So, so does she returns now, driven by this, by this self-recognition that she says, I have this love in me that I cannot or will, I refuse to extinguish. Exactly. I should add, by the way, um, just to correct myself, I, it, I made it sound as though the feminists of the 1970s invented this idea that women were you know, uh, were made less powerful uh, through romantic love with men. But it was, it's Simone de Beauvoir whose chapter on the woman in love and the second sex. Uh, she, I mean, she wrote that book. Uh, you know, she wrote the book on, on this question. Um, she, she lays it out there, Simone de Beauvoir, and says very clearly that women are powerless uh, through romantic love. Uh, and, it, and it's not a, a position of uh, strength and power at all. So how does, uh, to go back to your question, how does Charlotte Bronte handle this? Well, I mean, she finds um, that Rochester is not quite the same Rochester. Um, he is not only no longer her master in the sense of being uh, her employer, um, but he is diminished physically. Um, he is blind. He has, uh, he has a, a, a wounded um, um, hand. And um, this all, of course, has been explained as <laughs> psychological symbols, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you can read it easily as a, a sort of a biblical punishment for his uh, wish to be adulterous because it, it does echo the biblical injunction about what happens. Um, but, but in fact, uh, and again, I, this is not original to me at all, but it, it, it makes sense that um, this 
a diminishment of his power puts her in the position of, of more equality because he he needs her he he comes to depend on her and she's the one who is you know she leads him around and she um she is so necessary to him not just as a wife but for everything uh, to circle around her the way a wife's life is supposed to circle around the husband and so she's not just the kind of conventional wife who assists her frailing older husband who has now been symbolically castrated or something about his kind of sexuality is now diminished in a way the I actually am always interested I've I've heard so many people speak about Jane Eyre or read so many essays now when they say reader I married him which is her announcement to the reader which always strikes right. me unusually modern in a text from the 1800s that someone says and addresses the reader yes. people think that's a great wonderful moment the kind of the climax of this book and I think and I just don't know so so do you think she ultimately settles for some arrangement or do you think she re rethinks what marriage could be at this moment and by she do you mean the character Jane Eyre or do you the, mean the author the character probably and then probably Charlotte Bronte we should talk about I mean she Charlotte Bronte also gets married and it's I mean, the biography is kind of heartrending. Yes, yeah, yeah, really, it is. It's heartbreaking. Um, the character, I would say, um, yes, I think she feels that she has come to terms with uh, with what she can have and what she wants. And by the way, it's true that it's usually read as a symbolic castration. But um, but on the other hand, she makes it very clear that they have a child. Um, so uh, that's a signal that it is a sexual relationship. It's not just caring for an invalid. Um, on the other hand, you can say that even though uh, Rochester's life is going to revolve around Jane Eyre um, and he is going to adore her for eternity and she's got him where she, you know, where she wants him, to put it in very crass, unromantic ways, um, at the same time, she is still caring for him. And that was what a wife does. You know, a wife was supposed to spend her life caring for her husband and the children. Um, and so it, it's kind of a mixed bag. And, but I think that it was impossible for um, Jane, for, uh, sorry, um, Jane Austen or uh, Charlotte Bronte to imagine a full life for a woman without, um, without marriage as the end. So all of Jane Austen's novels end with marriage, even though Jane Austen herself never married. <laughs> and Charlotte Bronte, we should say that she does marry and then she marries and a year later she is pregnant and she dies of complications during the pregnancy. Yes. Kind of at yeah, well it's thought that she was pregnant. We actually don't, there's no actual proof. But, uh, but that is the, the current thought is that she was pregnant. But I want to ask you something directly about this. So Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte couldn't envision really a model of a marriage where women would be let's say fulfilled, genuinely fulfilled. I'm not even talking about legal rights here, which is sort of not really in the scope of what they're dealing with. Right. Do you think when we look at today, do you think we have found another paradigm? So when you're saying Simone de Beauvoir writes a whole chapter and people were not quite satisfied, then the feminists in the 70s are sort of saying, right. you're saying, well, marriage is you know, not a convention. Then we have all sorts of movements to say, on the one hand, we're fighting for marriage equality for the LGBT community. That's right. I actually inter I once talked to Ted Olson, who was one of the two lawyers in the Supreme Court in Windsor versus the United States. And I said, 
So you gave us marriage now for the LGBT community. Isn't that just another convention that's going to just trap us? And he said, I don't give you anything. It is for you to work out reality. Lawyers just create opportunities. Mm. So he would have said something like, I'm your Charlotte Bronte. I'm giving you a few options. You have to live your own realities. Yes. But I was, I was curious, do you think we have a better paradigm now, how women are supposed to live out what you've called earlier, sort of passion, romantic love, their own desire, their own self-determination? Is there a better model or do we still live in the Bronte universe? Well, it's all, it's all relative because, you know, it's, um, it's, it's very uh, different in some very good ways. And legally, as you mentioned laws, that cer certainly we've made a lot of progress in terms of laws and in terms of culture also. I, won't, I certainly wouldn't deny that. But I think it's gotten very confusing. It, it, it is not what uh, Shulamit Firestone envisioned as the ideal society for women. I think there's plenty of problems and they're not as obvious as something like the glass ceiling or sexual harassment or, or, or uh, sexual assault, et cetera, et cetera. Not that those don't have some confusions as well, but um, I, I mean, by confusions, I mean controversy. But, uh, but when it comes to romantic love, it's, it's difficult. It's a, such a complex idea uh, and so individually uh, experienced that, um, I, I don't think there's a lot of clarity about it. That was the point I was trying to make in The Glass Slipper. You know, what I, what I said about Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte was that they couldn't envision a full life for a woman without marriage. Um, and that's why the novels all end in marriage, except for Bronte's last novel, Villette, which many people think is her masterpiece, uh, where, you know, spoiler alert, there's no happy marriage at the end. Um, but, but then the heroine says, but just having known the man that she loved, uh, you know, is, is enough for her to be happy, which is, which is interesting. Um, at the end of the 19th century, you get, um, in, especially in England, the capital N, capital W, new woman. Have you, do you know about the new woman? There's this, you know, this was the new independent woman, young woman who was able to go into the workforce as the newly invented secretary instead of the male clerk and live on her own. And um, so you get George Gissing, um, whose novel, The Odd Women, um, it, it has uh, characters who are independent women, new women. Um, in the novel Dracula, uh, Bram Stoker, um, one of the characters is compared to a new woman uh, because she's masculine in some ways. Um, and, um, what Bernard Shaw's uh, play, Mrs. Warren's Profession, is uh, features a young woman who is a new woman who has a job, uh, she's an accountant, and, uh, and she spurns romance. None of these, in none of these, do the women um, marry. Um, because for George Gissing and uh, George Bernard Shaw, you're, if you're going to have a woman who's independent, truly independent uh, and equal to men, then she can't marry. Okay. Um, and we've gone beyond that, you know? So now we have a situation where, a culture, I should say, where, oh, you can have it all, right? You can have it all. That's, that is very typical of late stage capitalism in general. You can have it all, <laughs> not just consumer products, but romance is a kind of super pro consumer product as well. Right. And uh, a very profitable one, I should say, in, in materialistic terms, but also in terms of, it's sort of an emotional consumer product where anyone supposedly can have it and then also have the marriage. You said earlier that um, romance novels, 
Harlequin romances, sort of Hollywood, et cetera, is marketed massively to women. So if yes. we can have it all, what men are really not actually sold on is the idea of romance. So in some ways you're saying we can have it all, but this particular right. concept is still so massively gendered and yes. probably now exported around the world. And this kind of westernized notion is even sold to everybody in the world. I mean, we have reality sh shows about uh, bachelor style reality shows all oh, over the world. So Very popular, is it, yes. Is it still a kind of promise held out to women that with men, I mean, we don't really have novels in the 19th or 20th century where the goal or the, the, the mm -hmm. pursuit is to be married. That's just not, you get married to somebody, but then you move on. Your life is what Simone de Beauvoir would say, the life of a man is transcendent and the life of a woman is imminent. It's the men that project That's themselves right. to the social world all the time and women retreat into a private sphere. But do you think this fact that romance is still so marketed to people who identify as women is a problem or is it a, or is it linked to something that you, you've looked yes. at in your work? Yes, there is a growing uh, t uh, uh, trend of um, romantic novels uh, that are is aimed at a gay audience, male and female. Mm -hmm. But the one audience that resists it is the heterosexual male. And the, the, um, the coding of romance is feminine. Um, it is so tied into the idea of emotional weakness, which is, of course, you know, considered unmasculine, that that has been very hard to overcome. So women have become, I think, more like men than men have become like women. You know, yeah. it's not absolutely true. There's a, there's a much more of a, a participation of husbands and fathers in um, housework, let's say, and child rearing than there ever was before. Um, so I'm, I'm not saying it's an absolute that men haven't moved at all, but in, in this particular area, the area of romantic love, it's, it has moved surprisingly little. Now, I had a student once um, who, uh, uh, he was a young man and he was the only male in, in the class. It was this, uh, a class about uh, love. And um, he was very angry with me because he said that I believed that men could not love the way women do. I have never said any such thing, <laughs> by the way, um, because I don't believe it's true. I, I have absolutely no evidence that men don't love the way women do. Uh, and if, even if it were true, how would I know that? Um, but he was so, um, he was so angry that he, he was, had convinced himself that I had said that. It seems that he, to me, that he made this mistake because he was very sensitive to the accusation that men can't love, the very thing that Shulamit Firestone accused men of. Uh, we don't hear that much anymore, though. Um, but this was, you know, anti-male in, in his eyes that, that I was being biased against, against men. But in fact, I, I, I don't have any such assumption. Um, I couldn't answer the question of, of comparing men's feelings about love to women's feelings about love. Uh, I've had students in class who call themselves aromantic, actually, and, and, you know, similar to asexual. They don't ever feel romantic love. They don't think they're capable of it. I have uh, two friends who said they don't believe in love, that both of them are male. Um, and, uh, you know, what, is that, what does that even mean? <laughs> so, what does that mean? It's kind of interesting to say, I don't believe in something that most of the world's literature has from the bible to today yes. has always assumed to be the driving force 
when fused with sexual desire as sort of determining everything in the world. In some ways, it seems to override even power or the need for power or um, social recognition. So in some ways, when people don't believe in it, um, it's like, well, what does that mean? But yeah. in some ways, when you go back to Jane Eyre, when you th think, I think it's a novel that has such a huge impact. Um, if you were telling a 15-year-old boy what book to read, uh, and the book, I think it was such, it's such a canonical feminist book, which has had such tremendously important and great readings by such major critics, um, everything from Virginia Woolf to, you know, Gilbert and Gubar, so to, to today. But do you think a, a boy could learn something, actually how to actually navigate all these complexities and these contradictions? I've had, uh, I have a male friend, not one of the, uh, the other two who don't believe in love. <laughs> I have a male friend who, uh, who very much uh, enjoyed uh, Jane Eyre. Um, I did a, a book club online um, one year, um, and Jane Eyre was one of the books that I did. And overwhelmingly, the, uh, the students or, you know, the, the people who, who took the book club online were uh, female. But there were, there were some men who enjoyed it very much as, as a novel, as a 19th century novel. So no, I don't think it's just about women. But it, but it, is, it is focused on, on women's experiences and it's a love story. So I think that combination, probably my, my teenage grandson would not be reading it, no. I mean, it's, I thought about it when I was rereading it and I was sort of, I really benefited from sort of you giving a much deeper understanding of that there's this tension in the book between her claiming this right to express her passion and her, des her desire, and then saying, I have to find a way to still put this in, while she goes against conventions in this out sort of angry speech to Rochester said, I'm no longer adhering to convention. But ultimately she doesn't go into a place where no social conventions apply at all. It's oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I think there's, um, just as there's a tension between passion and, um, and uh, uh, spiritual values, I, I'm searching for the right word that, that uh, Bronte herself would have used. Uh, so I'll say spiritual values. Just as there's a tension there in, in the novel, I think today there's a tension between romantic love as the basis for marriage and a different definition of romantic love, because it doesn't have a uniform definition throughout history at all. Um, just as it wasn't necessarily women who were more interested in romantic love than men, if we judge by the literature going all the way back to, um, you know, uh, well, everyone who's written about romantic love, Lancelot and, and uh, Tristan and, and, uh, and so forth and so on, uh, romantic love was, was a topic that was very male, um, in literary history, right? Until women really began to write in, in great numbers, which, didn't, which took a very long time. Um, so when I say that there's a tension between two different versions of romantic love today, which has made it more confusing, I'm talking about romantic love in the older sense, even the medieval sense, but, but um, Sappho writes in this sense too, about romantic love as passion, you know, very similar to, to erotic passion. Right. Um, often indistinguishable from erotic passion. 
it, you are, you can't, it's biological, you can't help feel it, it takes you over, it's hard to resist, in fact, you were helpless before it, you can't just tell it to go away, et cetera, et cetera, you can repress it, but it, it will make you miserable to repress it, uh, so that's passion, but then the, the natural end of this passion is supposed to be, if not marriage, because marriage is becoming less popular even in America, um, although it's, it's still more popular than in Europe, uh, but but you know the, the age at which people are married in um, in America is growing all the time, and um, and also the number of people who marry is uh, decreasing. Right. Um, so it's not necessarily marriage per se, legally and formally, but it's a committed coupledom. That's that's the um, that's what is supposed to be the end purpose of falling in love and having a romance. And in fact, in this class, I always start out the seminar on romantic love, I always start out by asking students before we read a thing to define what romantic love is. And they're, year after year that I've taught this, it's always the same thing. For them, it's not a passion. It's not even necessarily defined as a feeling. It's a relationship. Oh. Romantic love is when two people love each other equally you know, and they assume it's going to be perfectly equal and perfect to, to, to a perfect degree and exactly in the right way and exactly at the right time. And so it's the formation of a couple. That's romantic love. And that's very modern. I think that what my friends meant when they said they don't believe in love is that they believe that this is something that's taught to us. You know, it's not that they don't believe that people actually feel it, but that that um, although one claims he, he is incapable of feeling it, but uh, but that it's a social script. You know, it's a it's a it's a cultural uh, performance, and it's it's or socially constructed, as they as uh, scholars like to say, and therefore it's not a thing. You know, that's that's their argument. It's just not a thing until we make it into a thing. And what's the point of making it into a thing? You might as well just have a relationship. If you're going to be in a couple, um, and most people seem to want to be in a couple, you, you can have uh, mutual respect and best friendship. And you, know, you can have similar values and tastes and experiences and a lifestyle together, uh, which, you know, what does that have to do with a romantic love? Well, most people don't feel that way, of course. Most people want both. And I think that actually causes some problems, is that, you know, it, it's not as easy as it seems, uh, apparently, to start out with this romantic passion and two people in love who belong together, and then uh, you know it becomes your your best friends and your you know your your you're together for life because you're meant for each other and, and, and so forth and so on. I think that coupling, which happened in in the Victorian age, as far as I can see, uh, before that pragmatic marriage was much more prevalent. And then you get the love match, as it's called, by Jane Austen, Jane Austen's time. Oh, she made a love match, you know. Right. Um, the love match took over and became the dominant form. Um, and, you know, you get the assumption now that all marriages are, begin in romantic love. Which, by the way, of course, across the world, that isn't true at all. But in, in the West. You right, get that, right. that assumption. I want to thank you for um, this conversation. I'm so, um, it was such a pleasure talking to you. And I, I really want to also recommend to our readers, even those who are not academics, The Glass Slipper, an incredibly readable book about women in love stor stories of how this idea of romance and marriage and what women's happiness is, has been constructed through time. So it's really a wonderful book. Thank you so much for being on Think About It today during a hot summer day. We're both on Zoom. so. 
<laughs> thank you. This was so much fun. There's nothing I like talking about better. <laughs> thank you so much, Susan, for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Think About It on Jane Eyre. If you like this episode, please like this channel on YouTube, give it stars on Spotify and iTunes, and share the links with other people who love books. And if you love books, and if you love to read and open yourself up to the mind of another person, such as Charlotte Bronte, fall in love. That's what Jane Eyre did. And that's what really matters in the world. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Uli Bear. My website is ulrichbear.com. Please follow me there. And I hope you'll tune into the next episode, which is on the writer who embodies America's unconscious, Edgar Allan Poe.